Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, a frigid Ottawa, Ontario, as we are in the dead of winter here. It is finally in the negative teens with the wind for the first time this season. Maybe good news for those of us who might be looking forward to getting out on the Rideau Canal potentially, if it's safe to do so. But uh, certainly, I've seen a turn in the weather here. But for me, I'm also fortunate that I get to stay inside and do a little podcasting. So I've been recording some episodes recently. Very excited to share this conversation today with Shannon McConnell, who is an individual who has degrees in both history and the fine arts. And this new project is The Burden of Gravity, and it tells the story of New Westminster's Woodlands School, which opened in 1878 out in New Westminster as a lunatic asylum. And then it later became a custodial training school for children with disabilities. And the school was closed in 1996. But during that time that it was a custodial training school, there was a lot of abuse, neglect of the children who were there. And this book tells that story as happened during the 1960s and 1970s. But what's unique about this particular project is that the story is told using poetry. Shannon, of course, with that background in the fine arts, has degrees in writing, is sharing the story, first-person perspective, in poetry. So it has the methodology of history. It uses archival work and, and other hard historical research, but it's told in a format that's very different from a lot of the other work that is currently available. So it, it tells a story that is painful. It can be difficult to get through some of this material because it is talking about abuse and neglect of children, but certainly a powerful story that is told in a very effective manner here in The Burden of Gravity. So without any further ado, let's get right to my conversation with Shannon McConnell. All right. And Shannon McConnell joins us now from Kingston, Ontario. Shannon, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for uh, having me. I thank you for doing this. I'm very excited to talk about the book again. It's The Burden of Gravity. So let's get right into this story. As I said in the intro, it talks about New Westminster's Woodlands School. So for anybody who doesn't know about the school, this is uh, an institution that I was unfamiliar with being somebody who grew up in Ontario and hasn't spent too much time on the West Coast, a little bit, but it's, it's not a, an institution that I was familiar with. So how did you come across this story and what made you want to pursue it in this form? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I grew up um, in Surrey, BC, which is about 20 minutes away from New Westminster. And I didn't learn about Woodlands until uh, like 2009, which was like it closed in 1996. So it was it was definitely around during my lifetime, which really when I found out about it, I think that part really shocked me and horrified me that that an institution like this was around during my lifetime, because a lot of the time we think about these kind of institutions as 
very much in the past, but it wasn't. And I, I found out about Woodlands th- through actually a creative writing class where we had a image and we ha- and it was used as a prompt for an uh, exercise. And after the, we did the exercise, the, the prof explained that, oh, this was an institution kind of in our own backyard kind of thing. And it just, it struck me. And I was, at first I was really mad and I didn't know what to do with this information because Woodlands, um, it's, it, uh, there was a lot of systemic abuse that occurred there and reading about it is really difficult because of all the horrors that happened there. So I, upon learning about Woodlands, I kind of, I spent some time in the new S library kind of reading up on it, but I didn't really know what to do with that or where to go with that. And so it kind of just kept on the back burner for me. And it wasn't until I, um, went to do my MFA in writing at the University of Saskatchewan where I needed a thesis project and I didn't really know where to go for it. And many university students know you have to apply for SHORC to get funding. And I kind of threw out this idea, well, there's this institution that I've always been interested in. Maybe this might be a project. And that's where the burden of gravity came from out of that MFA thesis it definitely provided an opportunity for me to start really researching uh, the institution. To make a, a bit of a perhaps unfair comparison, as I was reading about this school a little bit, it struck me that there is a bit of a parallel between residential schools and this particular institution in the sense that, as you mentioned, often this type of institution tends to get situated in the past and it's not something that we think of as something that would happen in the recent past, something that's you know mid 20th century or earlier, and certainly residential schools, I think fall into that category too, where people think of them as something that happened a long time ago, when if you look at the history, it's much more recent than I think the average person would guess. So you know, there, there seemed to be a parallel to that, as well as you mentioned the abuse and things that went on there. But what was the transformation of the school? So it opened in 1878 as a lunatic asylum and then changes to become a uh, training school, a custodial training school for children with disabilities. So in your research, as you were going and looking into everything that happened there, how did you trace the transformation of the school? And did the changes in the individuals who were brought to the school alter the way in which the school operated in a significant way? Yeah, so it, it started as a like, lunatic asylum. It was the first provincial asylum in BC, and it served as that and for quite a while, and it transitioned in the 1950s. This was after Riverview, which is the other mental hospital, or was, although it's kind of in, in between states currently. Um, it closed, but there's always talk of bringing it back. But it served as the adult mental hospital. And so there was kind of this transition right before 1950 where the populations were kind of changing and they decided that, okay, the adults need to go to Riverview and the children need to be at Woodlands. And we'll also bring in children with disabilities and have this as a place where parents uh, can bring their children 
um, as a as a place to help them and do occupational therapy and such. It's interesting because uh, the asylum itself, when it was built, was like many of these institutions, poorly done. There was issues with ventilation, with water supply, all kinds of things. One thing that has always st- stuck out for me is that the windows, even when it was for adults, the windows were too high for the the patients to see out, which even created more of a problem when you have children. So it's very, very isolating, that environment, especially for children. And while equipment changed and there was attempts to better suit the needs of children, it was very much still an environment built for adults and adults with uh, mental health issues. The whole situation was badly planned, but it's it's difficult because, of course, they couldn't have known that 50 years or 60 years after its opening that it would be transitioning. Later buildings that were added were more specific to children. The institution tried to accommodate the various children, but it was lacking throughout its its time of operation. And was it always run by the provincial government? Uh, yeah. So, you know, unlike residential schools, we don't have that same religious component to this particular story. No, no. And is there any physical remains of the, the school left? And is there that, that type of physical material culture aspect to this story? And if so, did you have a chance to visit the site? Yeah, so every time I go home, I try to make a point of visiting where Woodlands once was, right now, where it was, because with these kind of institutions, they were typically built kind of outside of the city, usually near, this happens to be like right along the water, along the Fraser River, which is now uh, top dollar, like really valuable land. And so much of the Woodlands land is now condos which kind of makes me cringe a little bit every time I think about it. But also where the Woodland Cemetery used to be, they have now put up a, a memorial garden, which is actually really, really well done. They recovered a lot of the gravestones that were originally taken away from that cemetery. So the, the story kind of goes that um, beside the cemetery, there was a... I think it was Queen's Hospital, the original hospital that was made there. Um, And they had a lot of elderly patients, and they didn't want the elderly patients looking out the window and seeing the cemetery. They thought it would be kind of a downer. Um, So what they did was they they lifted up all the gravestones, and they put a bunch of them in storage. They put a bunch of them behind the the building to build a, a retaining wall in the ravine. Not things that you should be using people's gravestones for. They also, the staff use it to make uh, uh, the, the floor of a patio for uh, like their break area. So there was a lot of disgracing of these gravestones. And so in the early 2000s, kind of when volunteers were coming uh, together and survivors and just kind of advocating, they decided that they wanted the the cemetery to be used as a memorial site. And so now when you go there, they have every one of the gravestones that they recovered is up on these walls. They found 
I think it's nine original gravestones that were still in their spots. And so they left those where they were. And yeah, and then there's these plaques that list every person that died in Woodlands, whether the gravestone is, they found it or not. But it's it's really, it's it's a lot to take in walking through there, especially when you see just like half a gravestone or just a, a chunk of it. Or if you see uh, a gravestone that says like baby Scott, or it, it's just, it's overwhelming to see well, as I listen to you tell that story, it, it strikes me that it almost feels like a representation of how those people were also then treated during their lives, that they were dismissed, they weren't really treated with much care, and that then translates then to the way in which their the, the markers noting their deaths are also treated, that if somebody who was buried in that cemetery during their life had been treated with more respect and and you know hadn't been abused and whatever else was going on in the institution then the marker would have been treated with more respect and it seems like those two things that it's just a, a symbolic representation of some of the things that went on in the building absolutely yeah it's it, it's it's sad to to see that even in death they didn't get the respect that they deserved right absolutely yeah so let's focus in on the era of the 50s and the, uh, excuse me, the 60s and the 70s when the book takes place. So you mentioned that the institution transformed into a site for children with disabilities around the 1950s. So when we're looking at this particular era, the 60s and the 70s, who are the people who are there? Who are the children? Where are they coming from? What typically is their background? And I think just as important, well, maybe not just as important, but also relevant is who are the people who are in charge? Who are the people who are the ones that the province has assigned to ideally take care of these children, which obviously wasn't being done, but you know, who, who were the people in the building? Who were the, the grownups in the building uh, that were responsible for the children? Yeah, the, the children, they came from all over the province with various disabilities. Um, there's lots of uh, physical, intellectual, emotional. And then there was also a population of just uh, like runaways or, or kids that didn't fit into the social norm. Uh, it kind of really became a catch-all. And it, it varied from sometimes babies to young adults, often if uh, someone was came there in, say, when they were a young child, they often stayed there for the majority of their life uh, until they died or until deinstitutionalization happened. Yeah, it, it, it was a lot of different different children with various backgrounds. Sometimes, like, there was uh, one woman that came from uh, a terrible house, terrible childhood, and so she... Uh, was brought into there as kind of social services as, okay, like the, the home isn't safe, but because of the tests they've done, they deemed her IQ to be low. So this is probably the best place for her rather than finding her somewhere else to be. And as far as the, the staffing, it's, it's interesting because at, at the beginning, there was a lot of training for nurses and, and, and attendees and staff, but as the population grew, and there was less 
qualified people available, it that's kind of when these instances of abuse really started because of the the nursing students or actual nurses they did not have the the time or capability to spend their time with all the all the children as much as they should have and they just were over overworked overcrowding was a huge thing with these kind of institutions overcrowding under training and yeah it it one of those things that snowballs and and just kind of gets out of control really quickly yeah, and you see those frequently in, in history and even today sometimes where situations, people are put in untenable situations and the result is obviously not good. And, and sometimes there are bad actors involved in that on the ground and other times it's just people who are put in impossible situations. And it's it's really tough to look into those. And, and so I would imagine that you doing the research would have had a, a difficult time trying to go through all this type of material, you know, I've done a little bit of work on on residential schools and it, it can be a struggle to get through the material just it's because it is so difficult to read about some of these experiences. But that does lead me to the question of poetry because you mentioned that this was an MFA project initially for you. You have degrees both in history and in the fine arts and writing. So as you were going through this, what made you think that expressing this story, telling this story through poetry would be the most effective way to give voice to the individuals or who were at the school? Yeah, I, I had originally tried to write some fiction around uh, Woodlands, but poetry just seemed like a better genre, a better fit because poetry deals with a lot of silence and Woodlands in itself had a lot of silence involved. And I I really thought that I could convey the institution and really humanize the situation in a way that couldn't quite be done in fiction, or at least I felt I can do that justice in fiction. So what, what do you mean when you say poetry has silence in it? Like as someone who is very uninitiated into the world of poetry, you know, what, what, what does that mean to you as, as a writer and as me as a very much a lay person uh, towards poetry? How could I try to understand uh, what that means? I mean, just thinking of it even in a historical sort uh, kind of way, when I was reading the archives and going through these papers and such, I was looking for what's not being said, what's what's in the gaps, where are the gaps, and what, what can I glean from this knowledge. Um, and so with poetry, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things unsaid. There's a lot of silence in literally the page, how a poem is laid out, but also with how, how the words come together. And it, it picks up on, on, things that aren't typically said uh, and brings these emotions out of the silence that we typically don't say out loud. And that, that certainly you know, resonates from a historical perspective. And, and it's something that, you know, that I try to think about when I'm, I'm doing work as well. But the, the thing that I, I'm really curious about now is that in the book, the poetry is you're sort of personifying individuals who were there. So in giving voice to those people, 
how do you do it with that perspective of their experience? How, how do you mold those two things together? Because, you know, as a historian, from that historical perspective, I'm familiar with, you know, the idea of writing about the gaps and, and what's not there, but from that third person perspective. So how then do you go down as someone who is a writer who has that great familiarity with the form to personify individuals who have been excluded from that record that you're using? I had a really hard time just kind of getting my teeth into the project at first because I knew that I didn't want to use I. I didn't want to speak for uh, the survivors. I didn't think that was my place, but I wanted to give kind of snapshots and insight into what was happening during that time. So every poem is based on some kind of truth that I that I gleaned from the archives. Um, there's a, a couple key sources uh, written about woodlands that I kind of pulled from. And so I would I would read about these these experiences and there would be something, maybe an image or a word that really caught my attention. And I'd I'd think about the context of those years and try to think about the cultural going-ons of that time. And so I would I would try to recreate this experience and and shift it from this a lot of the historical sources are written by staff or or pe- not the patients themselves, the residents themselves. So trying to find their experiences and pulling that out into the foreground was really key for me. And, and I, I often did that through images and, and through these, these memories and stories that I would read about and trying to encapsulate like a, a snapshot, a moment in time in the story and bring that to life, knowing what I know about the context of the institution and what it was like and kind of piecing these things together so that the reader can, can feel that these were actual humans and not just stats. And while the poems aren't based on specific people, like I use, I made up names, they're all coming from true events. So there's a, there's a bit of truth in every poem. And I really wanted to make sure that I was writing with compassion and then it wasn't of a place of exploitation because that's not what I want at all. This is more about challenging the reader to think about how we remember these institutions and, and flipping the script and thinking about the patients before we think about the institution and the staff and, and that view from up top. Yeah, which I, I think is a very laudable goal for sure, because as you mentioned, oftentimes those who are not included in the records, they are they tend to be omitted from the, the history as well. And certainly in this case, putting the students front and center makes a lot of sense and is something that uh, certainly, you know, give the voices back to the voiceless or those who've had their voice taken away from them, certainly at least in the historical record. But I'm curious, you mentioned that you don't use the word I because you don't want to speak for the students and their experience. So how do you, just from a purely technical writing standpoint, how do you personify somebody or a perspective without falling into the use of I? And how do you convey that to the audience? It was definitely a struggle in writing it. With the book, there's about five different characters that continually come up throughout the book. And so I really kind of attached myself to them and worked on thinking about what their lives were like, where they came from, what 
what their diagnosis was, even though I don't, I don't dwell on the diagnosis. I, it's more about the human themselves and kind of figuring out their story. And in the kind of in the second half of the book, it, it kind of takes a, a shift in tone. And this is where I, I kind of insert myself, but not really. I don't use I, but I ask questions. There's a couple poems that questions where I ask, like, did you know that was, this was going on? Did you understand? Did you care for these children as you should have? And like asking these questions as as a collective rather than myself. So definitely a struggle to to not get myself involved. But I didn't want to be part of that because it's not my narrative, but it's narratives that need to be told. There's going to be a lot of folks with history backgrounds who come to this. What should they expect and how is it different? Obviously, it's different in form as a book of poetry, but in terms of the storytelling aspect of it, how different is it, if at all, from a typical history would, would you say for, for someone who's coming to this? Because I, I hear this and, and I think that the same information can be conveyed and the same message can be conveyed through poetry, maybe even more effectively, probably more effectively and more meaningfully through poetry in this particular case than a traditional history. So if, if I'm coming to the book as a historian with my historian's mindset, knowing that it's based off of this archival work and certainly probably would have worked as a traditional history, if you will. How can the audience expect the story to be conveyed differently? And what was your strategy to ensure that historians and those interested in the pure history of this are able to still get that information? I have like a a little forward where I kind of explain the general history but I think um, just reading through it, it definitely it has this this resident focused. Um, so telling the stories of the voiceless or the silence in uh, not a traditional historical way, but but I think all these aspects of history are kind of done throughout by shifting the focus, by reading against the grain. It 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 kind of makes the, the narrative easier to kind of digest without the extra theory and, and historiography kind of jammed in there. You know, losing those things isn't always a bad thing, right? I did go on to do my MA in history, so I've actually done the the academic writing on Woodlands <laughs> too, so I've kind of done it all. Right. Um, and, and just in, in terms of the poetry itself, how would you describe that? Because again, total layperson here, I think of poetry as like limericks and stuff, right? Things that rhyme. So, so what type of poetry is, is used here in the book? I think that this book is really accessible, especially for historians. I'm not like a super clever poet. I'm not out to like break your brain. Um, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of the writing is just free verse. So I don't rhyme. That's not my thing. And it's more of storytelling, which is, is kind of key to, to writing history. It's giving snapshots of, of kind of written history. And I think, uh, I think it's pretty accessible. The second half has a little bit more visual poetry to it, which I think is also interesting because I, I use erasure, which is taking a document 
and blocking out words you don't want. Um, and so in, in this book, I have a couple poems which I've used newspapers as the source material, which were about the, the closing of Woodlands and the fight for compensation, the aftermath of that. And so I've gone through and, and blacked out the words that I didn't want there. So I wanted to change the narrative of this. Typically, these articles are about the institution. Um, sometimes I'll mention more specifics about the residents, but I wanted these poems to represent a different narrative with the focus of the residents at the forefront. Yeah, you mentioned that blackout technique too. You notice that that is yeah. the cover as well. Uh, so you know the, the reader is initiated in, in, into that and should expect that. Yeah, the cover turned out really awesome. For the audience, what do you hope people get out of this book? And when people put it down after having read it, what do you hope that they take away from the poems? From what I've heard from friends, they feel a little sad, uh, to say the least. Um, but I want people to really think about our history um, and how we remember our history. Um, in BC in particular, I know I've learned about Woodlands pretty pretty late. Um, and by kind of my friends didn't really know much about it. But as I kind of talked to other people, uh, older coworkers at the time, they're like, oh yeah, I, I had a grandmother who was a nurse there. There was, I was finding all these connections within the community of people who knew people who knew people. And the fact that Woodlands no longer exists on the landscape, there's the, the Memorial Garden, but that's kind of off to the side. If I think I want people to challenge themselves to remember these histories and keep the narrative going, to keep talking about it, because it is this history is getting erased so easily. There's not a ton of writing on it, and this is just one institution in BC. There's There was many different institutions, and I think just kind of sitting with it and knowing how the government and provincial government allowed this to happen and how they also were reluctant to acknowledge it and and the survivors and there's just so many layers to it i, I just want people to to think about the our history and challenge the narratives that we've been told all these years I and mean, we certainly encourage everybody to check out the book and and i, I agree that that certainly as I was going through it, uh, got that same sense. So the title is The Burden of Gravity. No subtitle, no colon something else. Congratulations on that. I like that. Uh, you know, too many colon subtitle things in, in the world of history. So good job. <laughs> and uh, it is available from our friends over at Caitlin Press. I just want to ask Shannon, too. You know, the book came out officially in the fall of 2020. And you know, normally you have book a book launch and, and an event and people come. And I think especially with a poetry book, you do some readings and stuff. But for you, what has it been like to have the book come out in this environment in the midst of the pandemic? It was interesting because I ended up doing an online book launch, which I kind of think was for the best because now I'm living in Kingston and I have a lot of friends and family in BC and in Saskatchewan too. So I think it kind of worked out great as far as being accessible that I could share that moment with um, many different people. 
But I do miss the being able to sit down with people, talk about the book, sign the book, and get to interact with people in a different way. And it's going to be a lot longer before I get to do that. Although I've been able to do some online events, um, it's definitely not quite how I had pictured things, but uh, I'm going with it. And so far it's been great. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully at some point uh, soon-ish, uh, you know, hopefully vaccine stuff goes well and, and you can have a, a big event to uh, to celebrate. So where can people find the book and more information about you if they're looking for it? Caitlin Press or any independent bookseller in Canada, you can ask for that. You can check out my website. It's Shannon Kelly McConnell because I wanted to have the longest URL possible, it seems. Um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, I'm... You can catch me there, uh, and my email is there too, if you have any interest in the book or poetry or anything like that. Awesome. And uh, as I say, we encourage everybody to check it out. So Shannon McConnell, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. So there you have it, my conversation with Shannon McConnell. And again, encourage you to check this one out. I think any time that we can tell these historical stories in alternative ways, especially when the stories lend themselves to this type of telling and you know as we talked about with shannon does so here in a very effective way really a powerful story and certainly encourage everybody to check it out again the burden of gravity from our friends over at caitlin press and certainly thank them for their help in setting up this interview so that will do it for this week thank you everybody for listening if you have not yet please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast do the likes the ratings comments all that stuff helps other people find the show and keeps us going also you can head on over to activehistory.ca all of our past episodes there under the podcast tab and you can check out all the work that has been going on at active history this month uh, last week last thursday great piece on the historical context of the riots and insurrection from January 6th in Washington. So that is just one of the many great pieces that we've had over the past little while. So certainly encourage you to check that out. And please do reach out. Let me know what you want to hear in the show, historyslam at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So We will be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.